On Monday, January the 23rd, 1905, Falconer Medden, who was the sub-librarian of the Bodleian Library, had a visitor. An undergraduate from Magdalen had brought an old volume of Shakespeare to get Madden's advice on how it should be restored. As young Gladwin Turbot took out of his bag a large book with a smooth, plain brown calf binding marked on the back with diagonal hatchings, Madden could not believe what he saw. He called in a colleague with an expertise on early bindings. His response was the same. Turbot's volume of Shakespeare was the Bodleian's own copy of the 1623 first folio, which had been given to the library shortly after its publication under the agreement with the Stationers Guild that a copy of every book published should be lodged with the library. To confirm the identification, library staff compared this Shakespeare book with four other library books which had been sent for binding to the Oxford binder William Wild Goose in the same batch in February 1624. The leather, the finish, the linings were all identical. Even more decisively, the book that had been brought to Madden bore a rip on its front cover. It was the rip that marked the removal of the clip that would have secured it by chain to a carol in the 17th century reading room. So this copy of the first folio of Shakespeare had been lost from the Bodleian Library for 250 years. So my lecture today is about what happened next, and what I'm trying to give you is a, a, a microcosm of current research I'm doing. I, I'm writing what I'm coming to think of as a cultural biography of the first folio of Shakespeare. Uh, how, how did we get it? What's important about it? But then also, what happened to it after it was printed? And I'm going to do that by following, uh, I think now, four specific copies uh, in as much detail as we possibly can from what happened to them uh, from the point of publication in 1623 right through to the 21st century. And here's one of them. The first half of the lecture today is going to be about why the 1623 folio of Shakespeare matters, any copy of that book, uh, why it's so iconic and so important. And the second half is going to be about the history of this folio copy in the Bodleian, why it left our library, and the efforts to try to get it back. So firstly then, the book itself. During Shakespeare's lifetime, 1564 to 1616, half of his plays were published in individual form in small quarto texts. The word quarto, bibliographic term, which refers to the folding of a single sheet of paper into four to make a book. Perhaps surprisingly, by far the most popular work by Shakespeare in print during his lifetime was actually not a play at all, but his saucy and fashionable Ovidian narrative poem, Venus and Adonis. Shakespeare was almost certainly better known to the Elizabethans as an erotic poet rather than a playwright. Arrangements for publishing plays in this period are still contested by scholars. We know that playwrights were commissioned or contracted to playhouses or to theatre companies, and that therefore it's these corporate institutions rather than individual authors who hold uh, the rights to the play script. In the absence of any system of authorial copyright, that doesn't come in for more than an, uh, another century, it's actually in the interests of theatre companies to withhold dramatic scripts from the marketplace until there is no future for them in performance. Otherwise, there is nothing to stop rival companies buying up the plays and performing them themselves. And that's because the commercial value of plays in this period is in the theatre. 
not in print. Hard for us to imagine, and we can hardly imagine a commercial, a commercial theatre really, apart from a, perhaps a musical theatre. Um, but the commercial value of play script in this period is very much in the theatre, not in print. The big amphitheatre-style playhouses, like the Globe, the theatre which Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, built in 1599, those theatres, running six days a week, had took between two and 3,000 spectators. If we compare that with a tiny print run, probably fewer than 400 copies of early modern plays, we can see that many more Londoners saw than read plays. Plays are performances first, Actors learn their parts from a cue script, which is just their own bit and their cues, and there are very few copies of the full play uh, in existence. And then only later, and only sometimes, books. There's scholarly controversy about whether Shakespeare himself saw his dramatic works as other than fodder for the huge entertainment industry which had grown up on London's South Bank. We do know that Ben Jonson, his contemporary, took great pains to construct himself as the main agent of his plays and to distance them as literary works from the sullying intervention of the theatre. And I'm going to talk more about Ben Jonson in a moment. But there's no such evidence that Shakespeare felt the same way. The conventional view is that Shakespeare took no interest in his plays as printed or literary works. Although there is a newer argument that suggests that he rewrote and extended his plays beyond a length feasible for performance in order to present them as literary and reading texts. Hence, perhaps, the version of Hamlet published in 1604, which is three and a half thousand lines long. The director, Greg Doran, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, estimates that certainly in the modern theatre, Shakespeare trots along at about 850 lines an hour. Uh, and that makes the 3,500-line Hamlet four hours long, rather more than the two hours traffic of our stage that Romeo and Juliet uh, mentions in the prologue and that's given elsewhere in the period as a sort of standard length for a performance. Even if we allow for faster speaking and, and swifter scene transitions on the early modern stage, it does seem that this very long Hamlet text might have been intended for private perusal in the study rather than for public performance uh, on the stage. Somebody should tell uh, the directors, perhaps. <coughs> <laughs> so at Shakespeare's death in 1616, 18 of his plays had appeared in print. An apparent attempt by a printer, Thomas Pavier, to republish a number of Shakespeare plays in 1619 may have prompted the remaining members of Shakespeare's theatre company, they were now known as the King's Men, because James I took them under his patronage on his accession to the English throne. It may have prompted these uh, remaining members of the King's Men to consider maximising their own theatrical assets. I said before that plays were usually printed when their life in the theatre was virtually over. This may well be the case here too. The publication of Shakespeare's complete dramatic works seems to have been rather an attempt to create a market for those works rather than to capitalise on one. Without the material investment made in 1623 in Shakespeare's canon in publishing it as the first folio, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Shakespeare's literary reputation and perhaps even therefore the course of literary history would have been very different. The huge costs of producing a 1,000-page, 36-play volume uh, were considerable. 
It took more than two years of printing house time. And we know that the resources needed, particularly type, were very much uh, in, you know, un under stress uh, during this long period uh, of setting. Paper was the largest cost for uh, book bookmakers. Paper was hugely expensive uh, in this period, such that bibliographers say that the most expensive part of any book published in this period is the blank space. The more blank space on a page, the more high status the, 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 uh, the, the publication is. You're showing off that you can afford a book which is so lavish in its use of this expensive commodity paper that it has these huge, huge margins. So there are a huge number of upfront costs uh, in terms of putting this, uh, this, this publication together. And they were spread across a consortium of printer publishers. We first hear that the uh, Shakespeare folio is forthcoming uh, in, a, in an advertisement at the Frankfurt Book Fair, who knew it had been going on for that long, in 1622. Uh, it, it, the, the book is actually promised that year, and it doesn't come out until the very end of 1623. So it's obviously been an effort, real effort, to put it together. Returns on the investment were slow. I think they were too slow for some of the investors. Ed Blunt, who's one of the most prominent, appears to have been ruined by the enterprise of publishing the Shakespeare First Folio. He dropped from a respected and profitable position in the Stationers Guild to a recipient of its poor relief in the years immediately following 1623. And although things picked up for him, he never actually recovered his business. An epistle at the front of the first folio, entitled To the Great Variety of Readers, is keen to assert how superior these texts are to any which might have been previously sold. You'll recognise this marketing ploy. We have, quote, so published them as where before you were abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies, maimed and deformed by the frauds and stealths of injurious impostors that exposed them, even these are now offered to your view, cured and perfect of all their limbs, and the rest, absolute in their numbers, just as he conceived them. But a note of anxiety in this letter is never far away. The fate of all books depends on your purses. Buy it first. Whatever you do, buy. The unbound cost of the folio was probably a, around a pound, 40 times more than the cost of the individual plays. And it's been, hard to accept, it's been hard for critics to accept that a volume which we now so prize might actually not have flown off the shelves in the bookselling district of St Paul's, and also that Shakespeare's reputation has not in fact been in continuous ascent since his death. The fact of book sales, I think, and of references to and performances of Shakespeare suggests that his star has rather waned at the time his dramatic works are published. The word folio, like the quarto, refers to the size of the book. A folio is a large volume about full scap size made from folding each sheet of paper in half. It is a format associated in the early 17th century with high-status works. Hollinshed's great work of history, the chronicles which Shakespeare uses uh, for his uh, history plays, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and above all, Bibles. So the folio format had very lofty cultural associations, and it also has the practical quality of longevity. Whereas some of Shakespeare's quarto-published plays now exist in only one or two known copies across the world, these are very small books, vulnerable to loss or destruction. There are over 200 copies of the first folio in existence. It's not a book you can easily lose, break, or wear out. 
the folio's format for vernacular literary work is almost unprecedented in 1623. Almost. I mentioned earlier that Ben Jonson, unlike Shakespeare, was a pioneer in preparing his own dramatic works for publication and in presenting himself to his public through the medium of print. Johnson's audacity had uh, culminated in a large folio volume called Johnson's Works, a format which he must have felt elevated the status of ephemeral play scripts into literary masterpieces. It also occasioned much ribaldry uh, along the lines that uh, Johnson's plays really are hard work, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing. Johnson published his folio in 1616, the year of Shakespeare's death. It was the only folio volume of drama before Shakespeare's, and in preparing Shakespeare's plays for publication in this format, his editors obviously had the Johnson precedent in mind. Like Johnson's folio, the Shakespeare work has a handsome set of preliminary material, including dedicatory poems from, among others, Johnson himself. It is from Ben Johnson's poem that we get famous phrases about Shakespeare his small Latin and less Greek, uh, he, him as the, he is the swan of Avon, and perhaps most perceptively that he is not of an age, but for all time. But unlike the Johnson folio, which has a title page picturing an architectural archway and statues representing the literary muses, the Shakespeare folio is not marketed as an aspiration to the literary status of uh, classic. Instead, it has the now familiar head and shoulders engraving of Shakespeare by the Dutch engraver Martin Druchot, in which the playwright's balding head and stubbly moustache top a stiff, plain ruff and doublet. Perhaps it's this association, right from the start, of the man with the work that has made Shakespearean biography such an enduring part of his legacy and made us feel that via the plays, some aspect of Shakespeare the man is transmitted to us. Unlike Johnson, Shakespeare is not on hand to prepare the volume. Instead, that task is undertaken by John Hemmings and Henry Condell. They're both veteran actors in The King's Men. Both were mentioned in Shakespeare's will of 1616, where they were each given money to buy a commemorative ring. They call themselves, in the epistle to the readers of the folio, Shakespeare's friends, doing the office of their care almost as if they're making the volume a belated commemoration more fitting to a playwright than the wearing of some ring. The extent of their editorial labours is actually quite hard to ascertain. They have certainly not acted in the way modern textual editors do to standardise the presentation of their copy. And we know that the provenance of the play texts used to set the folio varies from authorial manuscript to theatre prompt copy and, on occasion, previously printed text. The volume trumpets Shakespeare's generic versatility and his status as a gentleman, which he pursued through the College of Arms in the late 1590s. Master William Shakespeare's comedies, histories, and tragedies. And it included 18 plays which had not been previously printed. Without the folio, we would not have As You Like It or Twelfth Night or Measure for Measure. We would not have Julius Caesar or Macbeth. We would not have The Winter's Tale or The Tempest. We would not therefore have Mark Antony's famous oration, Friends, Romans, Countrymen. We would not have Macbeth, too full of the milk of human kindness, nor the brave new world of the Tempest. 
we would not know from extant Shakespeare that all the world's a stage, or that if music be the food of love, play on. We would never have encountered the Egyptian femme fatale Cleopatra, or that man of blood Coriolanus, or the magus Prospero. All collected editions of Shakespeare come from this book. And in setting the canon of Shakespeare's works, the collection has provoked much later controversy. Why is Pericles not included? If it's because we think that work was jointly written with George Wilkins, why then is Henry VIII, which was also co-written with John Fletcher, in the folio? What about the other plays like Locrine or the Yorkshire Tragedy, which are attributed to Shakespeare in print in the 17th century? Is the fact that they're not in the folio proof positive that they were not by Shakespeare? Where is Cardinio, the lost play based on Don Quixote, with which it is rumoured the Royal Shakespeare Company will reopen the Swan Theatre next year? The folio prompts other questions, too. Where a, play dis where a play exists in two distinct versions, like King Lear, where there are hundreds of differences, some really quite important, between the quarto text published in 1608 and that included in the folio in 1623, how do we account for those differences? The folio tells us it is authoritative, but it does so, as I've indicated, in an unremitting sales pitch, which has as much to do with the worries about recouping the investment in the book as a disinterested account of textual differences. What, if anything, are we to understand by the order in which the plays are included? Is there something significant in beginning with The Tempest, a play we now know to be from the end of Shakespeare's career, something you would think the actors who put the volume together would surely have known? In the folio catalogue page, the history plays are prominently placed in serial order. They're retitled to, in, to invent them as a grand historical epic. Who did this and why? How does that relate to the occasional, scattered, non-consecutive experience of seeing these plays performed in the Elizabethan theatre? <clears throat> we know something from other copies, not the Bodleians, about how early readers engaged with this big book heavily annotated copies in Maisai, Japan, and at the University of Glasgow, show us something of how early modern readers might have read the folio. They're mostly involved uh, in the standard way of reading at this point, reading as commonplacing, underlining or otherwise marking star phrases and quotations that can be extracted from the text and placed in a commonplace book in order to be used uh, perhaps in the writer's own, own writing or for reflection and so on. This is a form of reading which places much more emphasis on striking local linguistic effects and on sort of sententiae or proverbial phrases than on narrative or overall theme. Perhaps, therefore, such readers were not unduly troubled by the folio's tendency to omit stage directions or to scramble speech prefixes. Its text of the Comedy of Errors is a great case uh, in point. You'll remember this play has two sets of identical twins with identical names. The way the folio prints this seems designed to perplex any reader who is trying to keep track of which one is which. So I think the folio can claim to be one of the most important books ever printed, perhaps second only to the Gutenberg Bible. At the time that the Stationers' Company sent the folio to the Bodleian at the beginning of 1624, it is likely that the library contained no plays by Shakespeare, or indeed by anyone. Thomas Bodley's instructions to his librarian, written in 1612, make his attitude plain. 
I can see no reason to alter my opinion for excluding such books as almanacs, plays, and an infinite number that are daily printed of very unworthy matters and handling. Haply, he concedes, some plays may be worthy the keeping, but hardly one in 40. Were it so that some little profit might be reaped, which God knows is very little, out of our playbooks, the benefit thereof will nothing near countervail the harm that the scandal will bring unto the library when it shall be given out that we stuff it full of baggage books. <laughs> it's against this sort of attitude we can see that Ben Johnson has an uphill struggle to raise the status of the playwright. Nevertheless, the library accepted the Shakespeare volume in January 1624 and sent it to be bound. We don't know exactly how the first folio came to leave the library. Most likely, it was included in a job lot of so-called superfluous books sold by the library to the Oxford bookseller Richard Davis in the year 1664, the year of the third Shakespeare folio, which boasted the addition of seven new plays, all now thought to be apocryphal. The third Shakespeare folio was published and received by the library under copyright rules, and it's quite likely that a more up-to-date text would be preferred to an older one at this time. Perhaps the library should not be judged too harshly. Like many of the institutions associated with the university, the Bodleian was still reeling from the effects of the Civil War and the crippling expense of Charles's tenure in Oxford. In addition, the library had just taken delivery of the last of the polymath John Selden's vast bequest, 8,000 volumes, which is almost half as much again as its current holdings. It led to a crisis, as so often in the Bodleian's history, of money and space. It may well have seemed an ideal solution to purge out some old unwanted volumes, what would probably have seemed to the librarian then to be duplicates, to free up shelving and to generate a bit of cash at the same time. But as librarians in more recent times have also found, deaccessioning is a dangerous business. It is very difficult properly to assess whether today's trash mightn't turn out to be the treasure of the future. Probably no one could have predicted in the 1660s how Shakespeare's reputation would develop. But whether this was a misguided attempt at modernising a collection squeezed in terms of financial and spatial resources, just an oversight, or indeed a last hurrah for Bodley's own anti-theatricalism, for whatever reason, our first folio slipped through the Bodleian's fingers. Until that day, in January 1905, when Gladwin Turbot unwrapped the book from his father's library in Ogston Hall, Derbyshire, and revealed the Bodleian's last treasure. The sequence of events over the next months in 1905 shows just how much the Bodleian wanted that book back. And here, the story of the Bodleian folio intersects with a ripple effect of larger questions fanning out from a small example. Most immediately and most parochially, perhaps, these are the internal politics of the library and the university. But they also span the policies of Lloyd George's governments in the early years of the 20th century and widespread anxieties about the transfer of culturally valuable objects from England to America. The appeal for the repurchase of the Bodleian folio was the university's first real development effort. And we can see both how far this fundraising apparatus has developed, you may have your own views about whether that's a good thing or not, but also how similar some of the concerns across the century are about how we should make priorities in the university and how alumni should be approached. So, the 
case of the Bodleian First Folio is a nice test case for uh, aspects of the history of the library and of the university. Once the Bodleian Folio was identified at that meeting in Madden's office, it was left with him at the library for safekeeping. Over the coming months, the sub-librarian, with junior colleagues and with young Turbot himself, the Maudlin undergraduate who had brought the book, worked first on an article about the book, which was to be published in the Athenaeum Journal, and then on a pamphlet to be privately published, paid for by subscription, which would offer a full bibliographical description of the volume, as well as the narrative of its rediscovery. Madden commissioned Horace Hart, the printer at Oxford University Press, to produce a folio uh, a folio-sized pamphlet uh, and to produce it in letterpress printing, the kind of relief, relief printing invented by Gutenberg, used to print the first folio and still used for uh, certain high-status or facsimile works by the press uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. It was felt that this pamphlet would be a fitting souvenir of the remarkable story of this copy. Turbot Senior, back in Derbyshire, was fully supportive of the enterprise, but wrote in no uncertain terms that he did not intend to subsidise it. Instead, the financial risk of printing 200 copies of the pamphlet and 750 copies of an advertising flyer was all Madden's, and the cost per pamphlet of five shillings was to be sent to his college address, Brasenose, not to the Bodleian. Why? because Madden was working freelance. He had not, in fact, told his boss, Bodley's librarian, about the find uh, until he absolutely had to at a point when the book was going to be displayed at a meeting of the London Bibliographical Society. Correspondence with Turbot Senior in Derbyshire about the volume was all done by the sub-librarian. Unbeknownst to Bodley's librarian, his deputy had already written to Derbyshire to ask that the library buy the volume uh, by subscription. The discovery of the Bodleian First Folio was bound, perhaps, to increase tensions between Bodley's librarian and his deputy. Falconer Madden, the sub-librarian, was a scholar-librarian in his 50s at the time. He'd been working at the Bodleian for 20 years, much of it while also in post as a university lecturer in paleography. His academic credentials were impeccable. He'd worked on the revisions of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. He was the major figure in the Bodleian's great feat of bibliographical consolidation, its summary catalogue, the catalogue we were still all using, in fact, until uh, about uh, 20 years ago. He was a founder member of the Bibliographical Society and an acknowledged expert on manuscript cataloguing and on the early book trade in Oxford. In fact, the first uh, contact that Madden, uh, that Madden had had with the Turbots was when the young student Turbot wrote to him to ask if he could make some facsimiles from his Madden's book uh, to, to use as lantern slides uh, in a, 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 a talk to the Oxford Antiquarian Society. Edward Nicholson, Bodley's librarian, was from a different background. He too had been an Oxford undergraduate at Trinity College, but he was more interested uh, during his undergraduate days in being librarian of the Oxford Union than in his studies, and he went on to pursue a professional career in librarianship as librarian of the London Institute, where he comprehensively overhauled the library and its educational programme, influenced, strongly influenced by new developments in American libraries. Nicholson's appointment as Bodley's librarian in 1881 was a real break with academic tradition. And his energy, his irritability, and his, his, his sense for sort of organisational minutiae were in sharp contrast to his much-loved predecessor, the scholarly and rather hands-off Henry Cox. 
Nicholson's candidacy as Bodley's, Bodley's librarian was championed by the master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett. And thus his appointment was part of the modernising movement in late 19th century Oxford. In fact, Nicholson became a very active controversialist in the Oxford politics of the fin de siècle. Uh, he was very strongly against experimentation on animals, one of the things which, uh, one of the many things about the, the beginning of the 20th century, which echoes with the concerns of the university uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, and he also had very strong feelings about women's education, for which he was a strong advocate. He promoted women to high positions in the library, and indeed he uh, predicted that it would, uh, that within a century, uh, Bodley's librarian uh, would be a woman. He was out only by a couple of couple of years. Uh, Sarah Thomas, the uh, uh, Bodley's current librarian, the first woman to hold that post. The Times obituary at Nicholson's death noted delicately it was a difficult post to fill at a difficult time. Mm -hmm and observed in terms which might be applied to many later Oxfordians bloodied in disputes with an ancient institution. Quote, Oxford, while impatient for reform, is always impatient of reformers. <laughs> Nicholson came to a library which was, in his own words, underroomed, undermoneyed, and undermanned. And he worked tirelessly to expand its physical footprint into unused spaces in the school's quadrangle and to develop the first underground bookstore with rolling bookcases. He incorrectly predicted this would satisfy our demand for space in perpetuity. You may see the cabin which has been built in the lee of the Radcliffe camera at the moment, which is taking the books out of the underground bookstore. It seems the end of, uh, Nicholson's, of that part of Nicholson's uh, legacy. So Madden and Nicholson thus embodied the contrasting figures of the librarian as scholar and as administrator, or in more loaded terms, the librarian as gentleman, academic, amateur, or as professional, working for money and advancement. They also embodied something of the conflict between tradition and progress, reaction and reform in the Oxford of their day. And although both on this matter were actually on the same side, they both wanted the Turbot copy of the folio back in the Bodleian, they were so much on different sides of other ideological battles in the Oxford of their time that they could not possibly work effectively together. Now, if Madden was fighting Nicholson over this volume, he was also fighting the Turbots. An early indication of this can be seen in the proof pages of his pamphlet, the title page is changed in proof in Madden's uh, spidery handwriting from the Turbot First Folio of Shakespeare to the Bodleian First Folio of Shakespeare. <laughs> and indeed, the whole pamphlet works as a covertly proprietorial claim to the volume. Not least, I think, because it was in his long-term interests to stress the Bodleian's provenance and to minimise the claims for ownership, for real ownership, by the Turbots, Madden undertook a detail, detailed description of the wear and tear on each leaf of the Bodleian folio in order to demonstrate which plays were most popular with early 17th century readers. The basis for this assessment was, of course, that nobody had looked at the book since it had left the library. Uh, it seemed, that seems quite unlikely. I mean, it had been published in, uh, it had been uh, purchased by the Turbot family by somebody who was very interested in dramatic works and built up a large library. Uh, and it would seem to me would have probably enjoyed uh, using using the book. 
But Madden finds that the most popular play based on the amount of damage to its pages is Romeo and Juliet, which gives a rather nice insight into the preferences of library readers in the early 17th century. Uh, Bodleian readers uh, in the, at that period comprised those who had taken the BA degree at least two years previously, or those who were strongly recommended. Uh, so they were not undergraduate students. Overall, Madden's assessment of the wear and tear on the book suggested that the tragedies were the most enjoyed of Shakespeare's plays, the most read. The histories were the least. No one seems to have bothered at all with King John, which is as pristine as if it had just come uh, off Ed Blunt's printing press the day before. Both Nicholson and Madden had proposed independently to Turbot in mid-1905 that the volume should be sold to the Bodleian, but there was no apparent interest in this suggestion from its owner. Interest in the Bodleian's first folio, which was available to view in Madden's office, he kept a visitor's book with the heading Pilgrims to the Shrine, um, continued to grow, following that article in the Athenaeum Journal and a report in the Times. Although Madden's pamphlet was not a sellout, it did make one ominous sale. In March 1905, the London booksellers, Henry Sutheran and Co., wrote to him, an important foreign customer of ours is anxious to obtain, for purely bibliographical reasons, further particulars respecting the Shakespeare described in your pamphlet. Madden's boasting about the volume's uniqueness was almost the Bodleian's undoing. In October of 1905, the bookseller Sutheran, acting on behalf of this anonymous but important foreign customer, wrote to Turbot at Ogston Hall with an offer to buy the book. The price offered was incredible. In the 1890s, the average price of a top condition first folio at auction was £800. In May 1905, a first folio had been offered by a London bookseller for the then exceptional price of £1,300. Thirteen copies of the first folio had appeared at auction over the period 1903-5 to five at an average price of just under £1,000. Turbot was offered £3,000. It was, as his son wrote to Madden, too much to pass up. But the deal was not yet done. Young Gladwin Turbot wrote ingenuously to Madden, of course I should be overjoyed to see the work once more brought to the Bodleian, but I do not suppose the library will care to give that sum. However, we felt we would like to give it first chance, as in its way, the book is one of its greatest possible treasures. The library did not at all care to give that sum. Indeed, as Nicholson admitted, the library had never paid more than £200 for a book at this point and was facing a large deficit. The curators of the library were consulted about a fundraising appeal in 19, uh, November 1905. They were not convinced. No public sub subscription was to be undertaken, but library staff were permitted to make private communications with potential donors. Time was already ticking. The Turbots had given the library a period of a month to trump their buyer. It was later, this period was later extended to the 31st of March 1906. But there was no university apparatus for, con for contacting potential donors, and the wheels of the institution ground very slowly. From this point on, it is Nicholson who is in charge. And looking at the library archives, it's the small-scale detail of this project which is so striking. Potential donors were contacted individually. Nicholson wrote a prospectus, and he sent it to everyone he could think of. He asked the heads of house for lists of their rich men, 
Most replied with some disdain, saying they didn't know. <laughs> Although the master of UNIV, I don't know if there are any UNIV uh, uh, old members here, the master of UNIV did provide a helpful list of likely wealthy old members. Nicholson's appeal to bursars for the addresses of their former students had more success, although Trinity lodged a formal complaint about the use of the university calendar to identify potential donors. Some colleges offered to forward a small number of enveloped appeals on his behalf, and they charged secretarial labour and postage to the Bodleian, but some were less accommodating. The response of Keeble was not untypical. I've consulted the warden of this college, and he considers this would be a waste of time and expense. One could not say that the money poured in, but it did drip. Each donation was logged by hand in a passbook for Barclays Bank Oxford and totaled at the bottom of each page. The vast majority of the donations were of a guinea or less. A guinea uh, is the equivalent of about £60 in today's money. Nicholson appears to have written to thank each individual and further was involved in rather pooterish exchanges with people who did or did not want to be named in a list of subscribers. Reverend H.B. Barry of Bath wrote to say he did not see his name on the list of subscribers and that on consulting the clerical uh, dictionary Crockford's uh, suggested that the listed clergyman H.B. Baring was a misprint uh, and it should be uh, corrected. Nicholson's record keeping is so uh, meticulous that you can actually find Reverend Barry's paying in pledge where his surname does indeed look like Baring. One man, uh, at least one man, wrote uh, in some embarrassment to ask for his guinea back, having fallen on hard times uh, since, his, since his generosity. All of these people, Nicholson, who's described later as a man largely incapable of delegation, dealt with courtesy and grace. He must have done little else for months. A canon of Norwich Cathedral promised half a guinea and suggested helpfully that Nicholson throw himself on the mercy of Mr Carnegie, a thought which had also occurred to the Dean of Durham and others, recalling, no doubt, the American philanthropist's generosity to libraries and his professed love of Shakespeare. But for whatever reason, though, this remained a local appeal. As in any fundraising campaign, not everyone agreed that the objects were laudable. Warden Spooner of New College wrote to donate a guinea but considered the purchase an extravagance. The king sent an expression of regret that he was unable to respond positively to the appeal on the same grounds, as did the headmaster of Radley School. The rector of Whitney wrote explaining he could offer a guinea, but wondered at the wisdom of undertaking an appeal on such a scale, and remarked mildly, and uh, in a way which can't be contradicted, the occurrence of a first folio in a sale is not now very uncommon. Mr E.W. Bowell wrote from St John's School, Leatherhead, a long and intemperate letter about why he could not contribute, suggesting the present possessor ought to present it to the library, and it is quite absurd that any copy of any book should command such a price. Only the man-eating money maniacs of America could have started such an inept fashion. Many other contributors suggested that Mr Turbot should reduce the price on patriotic grounds. Nicholson defended him against this slur in his brochure. We must remember the price was not proposed by him but offered to him. Whether we like it or not, the price has been offered. And the only question is whether it shall be paid to transfer this copy to an American millionaire or to preserve it in England and restore it to the Bodleian. Turbot's own position, though, was a difficult one. As for many landowners, the agricultural depression of the late 19th century meant that capital was short and estate expenses burdensome at Ogston. Lloyd George's government had increased death duties substantially, and this was weighing on Turbot's mind. He wrote to Madden, The amount of the offer somewhat alters the opinion I had previously formed of making it a family heirloom. 
because, as you are aware, death duties continuously make very heavy charges upon the resources of each generation. Oscar Wilde's Lady Bracknell voiced this contemporary patrician anxiety perhaps rather more elegantly. What between the duties expected of one during one's lifetime and the duties exacted at, at, from one after one's death, land has ceased to be either a profit or a pleasure. It gives one a position and prevents one from keeping it up. That is all that can be said about land. The two decades before the outbreak of the First World War saw a large number of estates broken up, land sold off, and a major transfer of art objects and other cultural artefacts to America. The turbot £3,000 was very small beer in this context. In the same year, 1905, Lord Tweedmouth sold old masters worth almost £50,000. The Philadelphia meat magnate, P.A.B. Widener, took Lord Lansdowne's picture of Rembrandt's The Mill off his hands for $500,000. And the Duke of Leeds disposed of the contents of Hornby Castle, including its canalettos, to America for £85,000. This copy of the first folio, then, was caught between the declining English squirearchy and the unstoppable American squillionaires. The deadline for the raising of the funds was the 31st of March, 1906. By March the 11th, only £1,300 of the required 3000 had been raised. In desperation, Nicholson wrote to the Times, alerting Oxford men to the situation. He warned that it is practically certain this offer comes from the United States, and the danger was real. This will be lost forever, not only to us, but to Shakespeare's fatherland. Quote, that after two and a half centuries we should have the extraordinary chance of recovering this volume and should lose it because a single American can spare more money than all Oxford sons or friends who have been helping us is a bitter prospect. The Times leader encouraged its readers to donate, noting that in another country the government would help in such a case, but Oxford and the Bodleian live in proud isolation, asking for nothing from the state. Edmund Goss wrote in exasperation to the Times, asking the identity of this nameless millionaire, suspecting some emotional manipulation in the fundraising for the volume. Nicholson replied immediately that he had no idea who the potential buyer was, and certainly no name ever appears in any of the archival correspondence that I've consulted. A nice cartoon in the Morning Post showed a faceless tycoon with the Shakespeare folio under one arm and the Rockaby Venus, also threatened with transportation to America, <laughs> under the other. It worked, but only just. Fundraising went right up to the wire, helped by a last-minute donation from Turbot himself, which reduced the sum needed by £200. But even the day before the deadline, Madden wrote to Turbot to ask him for instructions about where he should send the volume. It had been sitting in his office all this time. He seems genuinely to have felt that the target was not going to be reached. But it was. As Nicholson announced in the Times, the Shakespeare is saved. The great generosity of Mr. Alfred de Pass and his relatives have done much, and now Lord Strathcona sends £500, which more than completes the 3000 Turbot telegraphed Madden, telling him to deliver the first folio down the corridor to Nicholson. <laughs> in fact, some money was returned to subscribers as being in excess of the sum required, and the list of subscribers includes promises which were not called in from, among others, the Bishop of Oxford and the Dean of Christchurch. Some 50 subscribers had their money returned, although many returned the return for general uses, one noting the mag is always full of complaints that the Bodleian is starved. The printed list of subscribers to the fund runs to over 800, making the average donation just over £3. My favourite item in the whole archive is Madden's manuscript addition to his copy of the list. A cramped but extensive and heartfelt list, persons who did not subscribe. 
The neatness of his writing is an index of his venom. The list of shame includes 50 notables of the university, including the Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor and Proctors, <laughs> all of whom were curators of the library ex officio. It also includes the Keeper of the Archive, the Keeper of the Ashmolean, three Regis Professors and 13 Heads of House. He has underlined, for particular opprobrium, the name of the Regis Professor of English Literature, Walter Raleigh. <laughs> So, how did it all end? Well, Barclays Oxford branch wrote to Nicholson in March 1907 asking if they could now close down the Shakespeare account and proposing that their contribution would be to write off a debit balance of one shilling, which had somehow accrued. <laughs> Nicholson's health failed. He was finally persuaded to take extended sick leave, sick leave a few weeks before his death in 1912. Madden took over as Bodley's librarian had a successful tenure from 1912, extended through the war years to 1919, during which he managed to eliminate almost the entire budget deficit. Young Gladwin Turbot was killed at Ypres in 1914. His obituary reports that he told his men stories of Henry V's victories at Agincourt before they went over the top. That's it's a lovely story, although it's actually in quite a lot of obituaries of lots of people. It was obviously a thing that one might do. The price of first folios went up. The Turbot Shakespeare's record of £3,000 was broken within months, and average, con average prices for first-class condition folios rose to over £6,000 in the 1920s. After a peak in the 1990s, the price of a first folio now is actually a knockdown price of about 1 to 1.5 million. Sotheby's are selling one in the next month, if you're interested. <laughs> and the unnamed American millionaire, he can be revealed as the chairman of Standard Oil, Henry Clay Folger. In 1906, Folger already owned 23 copies of the first folio, <coughs> and he would go on to buy over 50 more. He paid an average price of £800 in the 1900s and £1,000 in the 1910s. That's to say, a third of the price of the Bodleian copy. The library, which he founded for their preservation and study, was conceived as a laboratory, his, his word, a laboratory for their comparative forensic examination. It's a wonderful neoclassical building with a faux Elizabethan manorial interior, including a minstrel's gallery and an inglenook fireplace in the reading room. It stands next to the US Capitol in Washington, D.C., and scholars can consult and compare its 79 copies of the folio, more than a third of all those extant. But the one that got away, Folger's elusive 80th copy, was retained by the Bodleian, thanks to the efforts of its staff and, above all, the support of its alumni. That copy has been in Oxford ever since, a continually evolving library which could not be less like a laboratory, uh, and all the better for that. Thank you. Thank you.